I know, I know. Uh, a lot of experts they open with filial piety. I'm uh, like, okay, no, well, no, no, no. Well, it's well, not nothing to do with filial piety. <laughs> this is my mother saying, "I invested in you. <laughs> you are my you retirement are my plan." Golden yes. Ticket. yes, yes, yes. Set that aside. It's nevertheless the case that um, it is a transfer from one group to another group. But of course, that's the reason why we call them the sandwich generation because they, at the same time, are raising their children as well. Last week was part one, which was the unintended episode. And today I want to focus, continue this discussion with Jameis and talk a little bit about this idea of is the Singaporean dream still alive? Because recently there's been new policies, right? New GST, new taxes, and yeah, the property market. It's, it's a really big question of is the property market still a ladder for the middle class and the mass? And how is all these new policies going to affect the quality of life of the middle class? And with all that, then comes the extended question of is the Singaporean dream alive? Can out of the bag is he thinks it is alive, but maybe in a slightly different form. So welcome back to Chills with TFC. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Now for um, some of the questions that mm. I've, I prepared. <laughs> we just went on like a whole tangent. Oh, yeah, perhaps, yeah. And I loved it. I loved it. Okay, so... Thanks for coming in today, uh, and uh, we want to me. talk a little bit about some of the latest happenings out there, you know, in okay. some of your positions, some of your ideas, and also uh, some of the major discussions out there happening. Right? Okay. So, so I think the main thing everyone wants me to ask you about is how is this whole new tax system is going to affect the middle class? Okay, I thought you were going to say why the price of cockles are <laughs> no. so damn high. <laughs> Um, no, no, we're not going there. Nothing I know, I, to do with me. I know you have a hard bend, no. you know, on that. <laughs> um, okay, let me give you the origin of the mm-hmm, question, right? Mm-hmm. Because you guys talk about this affecting the poor. But the government of the day um, has put up their position to say that, oh, it doesn't affect the poor. Which, on some level, does make sense. At least from 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 my understanding of quality of life. Because it is not a hard measurement of how much tax you're paying. Mm. But how does it affect your quality of life? Right, um, so I can share that position, but I don't see the discussion about the middle class. So, so let me let me put it again uh, purely from a non-partisan mm-hmm. perspective, just based on uh, the my reading of the economics yeah. of it, and and, and it, it is important, I think, to put it in the full context of not just the existence of a GST, a consumption tax, which in and of itself, with nothing else, is regressive. Uh, no one denies that. Yeah. But when accompanied by rebate packages, uh, which the government has, it uh, alters the calculus. So yeah. th- there is an, what the government has called an assurance package that softens the transition period that will eventually go away. So if you want to think about it from the long-run long perspective, uh, that's just a windfall. That, that will eventually dissipate. But there is a permanent GST voucher scheme. 
and the permanent GST voucher scheme, the, the numbers are a little hard to pin down because we don't have, at least uh, in systematically published form, the different deciles of the income distribution, at least not uh, routinely published and yeah, available. Yeah. So it's hard to say exactly how many deciles would uh, end up enjoying the full GST offset package. But I think it's reasonable to say that the, the bottom three deciles, so up to uh, the 30th percentile, uh, percentile mm -hmm. will enjoy uh, GST vouchers that for the average uh, household would offset whatever is their GST bill. Uh, that is, I think, a good thing and undeniably so is what we want in a progressive system where we do have people who are better off contribute toward helping those who are less well off. So having the GST voucher system, the permanent GST voucher system is a good thing and it relieves uh, that impact of the GST increase uh, or the GST per se, for that matter, for the lowest income households. Now, then we get to your your question, the nuance in your question, which is what about the middle class? What about those that are above the 30th or 40th percentile? Those that are lower middle income that will receive some offset, but not as much uh, as they would receive in the absence of an increase in the GST. So net-net, there'll be more, they'll tax more. They, they, right? they will be, they will experience a tax increase. That tax increase will not be as acute. At, it won't be the full, the pass-through won't be the full 2% yeah. for, for the lower middle income. The pass-through will, in fact, if you look at the government's published numbers, they say that the pass-through, even for the 90th percentile, won't be the full 2%. I, I, I have no idea how those numbers were calculated, but Accepting those as at face value, uh, the impact will be incremental as income rises. So that bit, that progressive bit is certainly positive. But regardless, it, it is still the case that those in the middle income will experience a tax increase. Mm. So then you come down to, well, do we want this tax increase? We, we need the revenue. So I think, again, that is something that is not disputable. We have an increase in social demands and uh, social programs, and these have to be funded. Principally, if you look at it um, from the crudest perspective, we have increases in impending healthcare expenditure. Yeah. And that increase will require, given that our healthcare expenditure is subsidized, it will require funding. And so this is basically a tax uh, that will help to transfer from the young and healthy to the elderly and less healthy. So I think if you accept the principle, there's nothing wrong with that. Now, where one might have additional questions is whether that is necessary. And I think that's where, uh, again, from looking at the numbers carefully, you could, reasonable people could differ and say, I think that there are other avenues from which you can raise revenue, uh, not least from corporate taxation, which contributes about a fifth. So our distribution of tax revenue f comes from corporate income taxation, personal income taxation, fees and, and other charges. So these are you know things like your um, fines and so on and so forth. 
Really? Fines make up such a big part? Uh, fines, like no, but the other charges, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. it comes from uh, property... Conveyancing. You know, property taxation. Yeah. And then finally, uh, the last segment comes from... Oh, I, I can't remember the, the fifth one. But it's, it's pretty much distributed uh, quite in a quite a diversified fashion. That said, if you start to look at the numbers more carefully, you'll realize, for instance, that corporate taxation can potentially increase. So our... Official rates of corporate taxation, the headline rate is 20%, more or less. But in reality, the effective rate of taxation is significantly lower. And it's about something uh, south of 10%. And for some of our smallest firms, it's significantly lower. Now, you actually do want your small and medium enterprises to face lower effective rates yeah, of taxation. Thank you. Thank you. So it's, uh, <laughs> it, it is something that is positive and encourages. Uh, it does, it does. And, and so on and so forth. So there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, now, what is the case, though, is that because of our historical model in which uh, Singapore developed, where we invited a lot of foreign firms to set up especially headquarter operations in Singapore, we provided quite a lot of uh, tax relief as well yep. from uh, for, even, for even the largest multinationals. And actually, if you go entirely consistent with, so th- of course we, we were net beneficiaries of the system, right? When when it when there was no global coordination, because so basically what you have is you have no coordination between countries. So there was no way to actually say, well, we're going to have this race to the bottom where certain companies just uh, are able to take advantage of lower tax regimes in, in certain countries and then relocate their business operations. That is, after all, it's, that's the entire premise of a tax haven. Given that the world has now moved away from this, and Singapore is a signatory in the OECD-led BEPS agreement, it no longer is, I think, tenable for us to try to undermine uh, this process, which then means that in realized terms, we will see an increase in our corporate tax take. Mm. Now, what is uncertain and disputable is how much that increase will be. But I think even with reasonably conservative assumptions about how much it will increase uh, by just several percentage points, um, you will see a substantial increase in government revenue that comes from that source. And, And that could potentially, remember I told you how much of government revenue comes from GST or, or other kinds of, of uh, taxation versus corporate taxation, that those few percentage points would be sufficient to more than offset and increase uh, in the GST, which again, you could tweak to make relatively more progressive, but nevertheless, an increase in the GST would bring would reduce progressivity from where it was it, it can the overall system can still remain progressive but progressivity would have been reduced by relying more on the consumption tax versus other kinds of taxation like corporate taxation Mm-mm. but all these are technical ideas and also you know well they're technical but my hope mm. with a more involved and educated populace is that we take in a greater interest in in these basic principles, exactly how we subscribe to the BEPS agreement, how much of revenue comes from one source versus another. Okay, that that may be something that is a bit inside baseball. But how much we want to put the burden of 
our tax system on one category of people versus another. That that is something that I would hope is in the public policy debate. Yeah, and the one characterization of the government's approach is that this is fair. It's fair because everyone pays a little bit more. Uh, so that's one way to look at fairness. There's another way to look at fairness, and that is that th- groups that have benefited disproportionately from the system uh, should contribute more back to that system. So that's another notion of fairness. Which one is more fair? I mean, that I think is a bit of a philosophical question that society and it each, each yeah. one of us has has it to is. answer. Yeah. Um, but where I stand at least is that I think that the latter is fair. At least that's my take on it. Mm-hmm. And again, there's nothing to say that the former, the approach to fairness is uh, incorrect or or fundamentally uh, Are they mistaken? mutually exclusive? Because it seems like, you know, it can, both can exist, right? Like the, the rich people already pay more or in some ways pay more. Yeah, so, so in, in a sense, but, it's a matter of degree. Mm. So uh, I'm saying that the rich people do pay more and can afford to pay more, even more. Um, and not just the rich people, but those capital, that have, yeah, yeah mm. capital in general. And if you look at surveys or society, one of the biggest concerns that Singaporeans have, the, the big ones are things like labor and employment and cost of living. So bread and butter issues. But the third highest is rising levels of wealth and income inequality. Mm. And if we want to take that seriously, at some point, it does mean that we have to twist the screws. You can't say that you are concerned, that people are concerned about income inequality and you want to address it, but then you don't end up hitting those groups a little bit harder in your policies. Mm-hmm. If you do, if you don't, then the status quo will prevail and the status quo, at least as it has for the past decades, is rising income and wealth inequality. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the extension is that the government of the day has already increased its tax structure on properties, right? So, and based on some modeling, you can kind of tell that the profitability of properties will dampen, you know, mm-hmm. going forward mm-hmm. to perform similar to maybe a corporate bond, mm-hmm. right? Somewhere around that space. And you also suggested in one of your discussion to levy capital gains tax, mm-hmm. right? In the, the markets, mm-hmm. right? So essentially you get tax on your dividend income and blah, blah, blah. So if we're already going to kind of remove that ladder for property, which we already have because this is already there and potentially remove, you know, the capital gains, you know, uh, ladder, you know, no, so I, how is it going to... So, so what it comes mm. down to, Reggie, is it comes down to a matter of degree. Yeah, yeah. Of course, of so course. So there are some taxes that are, aren't are currently on the table. So you mentioned capital gains. That, that doesn't exist. We, yeah. There's no dividend taxation, no, no capital gains taxation. And it's like all hail in the personal yeah. finance community, you know? Yeah. Like people and are like, whoa! So, yeah. so again, maybe the country isn't ready for, mm-hmm. for that and, and they have no interest in that. So in which case, we're not going to have that. In which case, uh, the kind of taxation that we're going to levy on capital will be more along the lines of property and other kinds of assets. But regardless, it's still the case that it's a matter of degree. So do we think that with the most recent budget where there has been an increase in taxation of property with a new tier and so on and so forth, even before the budget, there was 
an, an introduction of increases in the additional buyer stamp duty and so on and so forth. Do we think that that has gone far? It has gone far enough, uh, or do we think that even with those moves, uh, they are too cautionary and the rate of increase of property valuations will more than offset uh, that increase in the ABASD or the property taxes such that you will still see an increase in the gap between the rich and the poor. So it does come down to a matter of degree rather than, I think, a fundamental difference in where we are, but it does come down to wanting to do more versus saying, let's be more tentative. For a lot of people, the new reality is as such already, right? So we don't need to talk about like, oh, what if, what if, you know? So the new reality is as such, that's the new tax regime. And it's going to fundamentally affect the quality of life of the middle class, especially with, you know, high inflation, blah, blah, blah. So we're not go there, right? Then by extension, I think the discussion will be, how do you think Singaporeans should kind of continue to better their quality of life? You know, and how are government policies participating in this process, right? Because like one of the things would be, oh, let's just, let's increase the E-pass, S-pass qualifying salary. This will rig the property, uh, the, rig the labor market prices. You know, but all these are like, oh, very technical, right? So, so how do we translate this to the mass? How's the new playing field going to mm. be like? And how are we going to continue our quality of life? Yeah, so there's, there's a wide number of yeah. potential public policy interventions that you could think of yeah. along those lines. Uh, let me just start with a little, a little bit of context. And that context is that right now, the way that a lot of Singaporean households, especially in the middle class, have navigated rising cost of living, uh, has actually been to rely on the property ladder. So property it's has, it's has taken the role of uh, providing a cushion for rising costs. Yeah. Do we think it is a good thing or not? I think the instinct that the average Singaporean has is that it's not a fundamentally sustainable uh, state of affairs. Especially so, with my generation. Exactly. We are priced out of and, it. And and ex Which, and the reason why it is not a sustainable state of affairs is that while you are providing for more and more retirement adequacy for the elderly that got on the property ladder right at the bottom where they were able to buy HDB flats. 15, 15 20. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 15, Amokyo, 20 years. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes. Mm. That, that was uh, less than six digits. Mm. Uh, and then offload that you know, now, you know, in Yishun, you have heard of a million dollar HDB Why? Flats. Why you stay in Yishun? Yeah. <laughs> okay, yes, yes. I actually live near Nishun, so I have oh, nothing okay. to say. Okay. <laughs> but, but, yes, yes. So, but... So is Yishun a safe place? Uh, yeah. As a denizen, I will, I will come to the defense of my neighborhood. Okay, but, yes. but this is what, but this is what I'll say. It's, it's actually um, not... I think, a sustainable state of affairs. You, yes. you will have young people and, and people like myself. Unfortunately, I, I did not get on the property ladder. Why? I left the country, right? I left the country uh, right after NS. So unlike most people, I didn't end up buying, go, going through the BTO route and, and bidding and, and getting the subsidized flat. By now, um, my income has priced me out of the possibility of, of getting an HDB flat, as it should. Uh, so... I did not benefit I, from I think a lot of people yeah. will be very happy if they're priced out of the well, s just 
you, you know, you know. No, no, no. So, 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 so it's good that, it does, that one doesn't have to rely on that. But, but my point is that mm. uh, you shouldn't have to rely on that. Mm. That's a horrible way to provide for retirement adequacy by by relying on an indirect transfer from people who are getting in uh, later than you are in the property ladder and essentially providing a transfer, right? So what the young are doing by buying into these very expensive flats is that they are cross-subsidizing the elderly. Again, there's nothing wrong. You should you should respect your parents and pay for their retirement. I, I question that. We can talk uh, about my, that. My, my mother never stops reminding me uh, about this, yeah, this yeah, reality. Yes. I know. I know. Uh, a lot of experts, they open with filial piety. I'm uh, like, okay. No, well, no, no. Well, there's well, not, nothing a... to do with filial piety. This is my mother saying, I invested in you. <laughs> you are my you retirement are my plan. You are my golden yes. ticket. Yes, yes. yes. Set that aside. It's nevertheless the case that um, it is a transfer from one group to another group. But of course, that's the reason why we call them the sandwich generation, because they, at the same time, are raising their children as well. So they are also incurring all these expenses to raise their kids, while also needing to incur expenses that entail a transfer to the elderly. So they, they are stuck on both ends. So the bottom line is, my view is that uh, property is one of... It was a way to finance retirement, but it's not a viable way uh, in the medium to long run to finance retirement. Mm. So then you have to ask yourself what, what other mechanisms are available. Yeah. And I mean, if median income doesn't continue to rise, you will have no richer people to buy up at a higher price. And eventually, you know, look, the bottom line is that property becomes so expensive that... It's not going to keep rising. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to keep rising. Okay, look. You, you hear? You heard it here. <laughs> as, as an as an economist, I will tell you that at least from looking at it as a class perspective, you we know that uh, at least with traded property with REITs and so on, they tend to perform better than bonds, than than, than even corporate m- many classes of corporate bonds, but less well than equities. Right. So you mm-hmm. place property somewhere between those two so, in terms of returns. So are we going to finally see cyclicality in the property markets here? Uh, so, so we, we, no, no, no. To be fair, we, there's a lot of cyclicality in, mm. in, in, in the property markets. But nevertheless, the idea has been that uh, by and large, over the medium to long run, people have relied on a very strong uptrend over time. And I think that eventually that uptrend will taper off. It never continues on forever mm. ad infinitum. Um, and you, you also end up with this awkward situation where uh, the government has to thread a needle, right? What's, what needle are they threading? Well, on one hand, they want to provide new homes for the young to be able to live in and to start their families and so on and so forth. So you want to increase the existing supply. But if you increase the existing supply too rapidly, so we're all often told that there's not enough land. And of course, there's not enough land, but we have enough land for housing. But we're not constructing as quickly for various reasons. And arguably, one reason is that you also need to maintain the value of the housing stock for those that are already invested. It's tied in, in it. It's right? tied in. To their retirement. Exactly. Yes. So... Mm. So then you, you're treading this needle between the two of uh, wanting to provide for a, a young population that isn't on the ladder yet versus maintaining the value of homes that um, for, for those that are on the ladder all so that you can provide for retirement adequacy. So for me, I think what has to happen is 
a divorcing of property from retirement. Mm -hmm. We had um, CPF is our retirement scheme. And for a long time, it in fact, it still continues to provide, I think, a fairly decent rate of return. It does. Mm. The issue is that many people, because they couldn't afford to pay for their housing uh, along the way, they used CPF in order to pay for their housing. So indirectly, their CPF retirement funds have not been invested in uh, other investment-yielding assets, but rather in property. Mm-hmm. And this intimate tying up of retirement with property, I, I think, is something that, that, that cannot be sustained mm-hmm. over time. But you know this is an iffy topic, right? Like people take pride in owning a home. So... Uh, Home ownership is like the mantra of the world, and, you know, and, or at least the country. Yes. And, and I have absolutely no problems mm. with people who want to say that they own their homes mm. uh, and more power to them. If that, That's a sense of ownership and there's value to that. In fact, I can even argue in favor of home ownership from a purely social cultural perspective. It helps you to sink roots, builds. It community. does. There's a lot of research. Yeah, there's that. lots of lots yeah. of reasons a why lot you, of people you, want, they don't leave Detroit because they already own the house. Yeah, you, you want to have yes. that home ownership. Yes, yes, so there, yes. that's clearly benefits it anchors the society, to yes. that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't have a stigma toward renting. Look, if so one of the countries with some of the highest rental rates in the world is Germany. And if you go to the typical German neighborhood, you won't find the story of slums and, you know, derelict uh, neighborhoods that result from the fact that everyone is renting. No, it, people people can build a sense of pride in where they live, uh, even if they happen to just be renters. Mm. Uh, and, and to maintain, and, and if you speak to Germans, they are also uh, pretty nationalistic uh, people that are proud to be, uh, Germans and living in the in the system and the society that they, they live in. So we shouldn't think that just that this must be the only anchor mm. for for loyalty to the country or to build community relations. It's one of them. Uh, and again, there's nothing wrong with people who choose to want to invest. And in fact, I would strip away this these pecuniary considerations and, and put it, or rather, these non-pecuniary considerations and put it purely in in financial terms. A long-term lease, say a 99-year lease, or something maybe you can wrap your heads around more, a 30-year lease with HDB, um, is actually not a bad financial deal. Mm. You take away capital appreciation, the amount that you're paying uh, on a month-to-month basis for this kind of locked-in long-term lease is actually better than market as one might expect, given that you're locking in a basically a contract for a long period of time. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to be on a long-term fixed lease. Yeah. Um, start by taking away the myth that this is home ownership because it is a long-term fixed lease, a very good deal, but it's a long-term fixed lease uh, that maybe you can pass on to your children if you were to pass on, but maybe you can't. And maybe there's nothing wrong with that. But needing to rely on um, what could be an overinvestment in property. So if, for instance, you have absolutely no desire or your children have no desire in taking over your flat, uh, then what happens is that if you you have bought into a property for which, let's say you're in your 60s and you still have uh, 60 years left in your property, most of us are not going to live to 120. 
So have you therefore over-invested in property, as good a deal as it has been, uh, that you now need to extract in order to, or you know, in order to survive? Because what what then happens is that you end up uh, having not enough in your CPF, and so you end up eating rice and noodles all day for for the rest of your life, just so that you can have this uh, property that perhaps you leave to your children. But ultimately, uh, and this is what I tell my mother. I'd rather you not leave anything behind for me, but make sure that you take care of yourself. Live a fulfilled life in your retirement years. Make sure that you enjoy the fruit of your labor. That's what retirement is about. Uh, rather, th- rather than, and live healthily. You know, don't skimp on rice with soy sauce. And then you end up uh, with health problems that become much worse to manage uh, subsequently in life. So I, I would very much rather elderly generation, like my, my, my own mother, pay for her own retirement, take care of herself, uh, than to say she wants to leave behind some bequest in the form of a property and so on and so forth. Uh, and that's cultural. That's this complex cultural ideas, you know, that we're not going there today. Yeah, it, 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 it is complex and cultural. But again, mm. uh, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we think that culture is... Less malleable, of course. Than, of course, then it, it is not. Is. It is, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. It is not less malleable. It's just, it's just um, very ideological, right? And you know, there are many things that affect it. Like today, you know, media, blah blah blah. It all these meanders shapes that culture, right? So, so yeah, I, I totally get that. And I just want to shout out HDB. I'll be very happy to like, you know, live a co living in somewhere like Harbourfront or something, right? Mm-hmm. You're gonna shift the port away, do a co living. I'll be ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> so, Very good. Yeah, it's great, huh? Yes, look, look for me. Uh, hashtag, huh? Okay, but um, the question is: we we went on a tangent on how property prices here have mitigated the impact of cost of living, right? Pretty much. But coming back to to the question of how do then fundamentally how do we raise median income? How do we raise the wages of our people? Right. This I think it. There is the myth of the market, right? At this point in time, there's a lot of talk about, oh, you know, market, market, market. Everything is about the market, right? So could, could you kind of help me understand a little bit? Yeah, right? so the, the standard economist prescription, so I have to say this as a card-carrying economist, the standard <laughs> economist prescription is, look, wages are paid according to their marginal product uh, mm-hmm. in a competitive market. So what that means is that you, if you truly buy this uh, framework, that means that everyone earns what as what they are producing in in the market, right? And they're paid exactly according to what they're worth. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, the reality, of course, as we know, is that we don't all work for competitive firms in, in operating in the competitive market. At the very best, we work for monopolistically competitive firms. So for those of us that earn wage labor, unlike uh, Taukes like yourself. Mm, so... I, I, <laughs> So, so what? What we? Uh, I'll be very happy to be priced out. Uh, HDB is just saying yes, yes. Continue. So, um, as far as what one earns, uh, it's 
going to be a deviation from the purely marginal, the, uh, the standard competitive model where wages are equal to the marginal product labor. For, of course. For starters. Of course. Now, and then on top of that, mm. you have the fact that wages are also set according to a bargaining process. Of course. Uh, between the employer and the employee. Yes. Again, mm. in the crudest economic form, uh, it is the division between capital and labor. So if you happen to be not a very good bargainer, uh, then you will end up taking, and this this has been verified with surveys all over the world, there's enormous disparity between salaries in the same organization for people who do very, very similar work. That's why many people don't want to go the route of wage transparency. Yes, yes. And, and I just want to put it out there that to go through the whole HR hiring process and finally be given a letter, it's very expensive and the company has already priced in a, a margin on top you know, to prepare for a negotiation from you, right? So this is this is market practice, right? So, so definitely uh, up def- 20% yes. at the very least. Yeah, definitely. I'm not sure about 20%, but, but definitely go in and, and negotiate, right? And so far, all my friends that did the negotiation, they all got some mm. something back. Yeah. yeah, so whatever price the company give you, pump it up. Sorry, although I'm a business No, man, no, and, yeah, and, and, yeah. and what I also have to say is that I'm one of the worst people to give this sort of advice because mm. I'm very bad at bargaining. Mm. I, I, mm. I tend to roll over. Really? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. But so, you know who you are now? Like, no, no, so, so it's... Uh, <laughs> You're dead to bargain. My, my, my previous, that, my previous yeah. job, um, I remember, I can't remember what the salary amount was, mm. but it was, yeah, whatever, it was a month and... $500, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh yeah, well, we just round it up so that we, we get the next nice thousand as opposed to 500 mm-hmm. And it was way underpricing. Um, and I only, I can say this definitively that I was underpricing myself because subsequently, I after I joined the firm and I, I got to know the HR person, uh, she told me, that nobody has ever asked for that little increment in uh, the wage negotiation process when they got their job offer, as I have. Um, anyway, the, back to the revealing all my weaknesses here. Mm-hmm. So back to the, the original point. Look, wages are not set according to either a competitive uh, market or in accordance with a competitive market or in the absence of bargaining. And so wages themselves differ so to make it of course if you're more productive you're going to be paid more there's no doubt about that there's long there's you know uh, fundamental idea right yeah, fundamental, well yeah. there is becoming question increasingly in the empirical data okay uh, all over the world not just here uh, you're seeing a disconnect between productivity and wages okay and okay. that disconnect varies between different countries uh, and and the extent of the disconnect varies between countries as well but nevertheless that's there's some relationship over the very long period uh, that indeed they do rise uh, more or less. In how, how long is long? This long? Yeah, no, 50 to 100 years. Okay, okay. Yeah. So you so, got to keep improving. So you, you may or may not uh, survive to, to enjoy that convergence. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, yes, so yes, so yes. the point is that you, you mm. want to be more productive. But here's a very simple thing I, I teach in the business school. We, we tell all our students that fastest way to earn a salary increase isn't by being better at your job uh, in within your job. It's by being so good at your job that someone else hires you, right? And you get that jump, that salary bump when you switch jobs. Um, and when you switch jobs, that's when you get the salary bump. And some people are serial job hoppers and they are the ones that end up uh, milking as much of that 
that bargaining process as, as, as they can. So the bottom line is that uh, you, you, we do want to see our wages rise as a result of uh, productivity, but you have to keep in mind that this varies between different levels and there are different factors that might impact wages at every level. At the lowest level, the fact that we continue to have uh, inflows of low-wage workers from our regional economies mean that you will see a certain degree of wage suppression at the low end, regardless of productivity, right? So you, it's very hard to be so much, so much more productive that really, you offset a very large wage differential. Yes, and I really think our NTC auntie is super productive already. <laughs> like they can do digital payment, all sorts of payment. They pack, they're very fast, you know. Shout out to you, NTC auntie. I only started to realize when I travel a lot and I was like, why is this so slow? Right? Yeah. So shout out to NTC oh, because auntie. Because if you travel abroad, you are doing your own packing. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> she, she, the person is very good at beeping it through. Yeah. So they beep it through and then you are the one yeah. that and, yeah, and, yeah, and try to put it into, to, a bag, to make into it your own bag. Yes, yes, uh, yes. So, so yes, so, yes. Shout out to NTC auntie. Very productive. I don't know how much more productive you can be. you know. But I think for our listeners, right, the main audience are what people will call the middle income. Yeah. Right, so what affects them? So for the middle income, middle and upper income, it, it really does come from continuation of uh, the accumulation of human capital. Mm. So I wouldn't talk about expiring degrees, but <laughs> uh, okay. I, I, I will say the principle is there, which is you want to continue to upgrade your skills and you have to be prepared with that mindset to continue to upgrade your skills. But it has to be two ways. So there's a social contract, right? The thing about acquiring new skills is that you don't want to do it in a void. You don't want to say, oh, I'm going to just randomly acquire some skills future credit and you apply that to some random skill. And then all of a sudden, I need to earn more because I have this skill future certificate. No, what you need is you, you need to ensure that you are acquiring an employer-relevant skill. Yeah, yeah. So you baking need... class is not going to get you. <laughs> no, not, not, not too far, bump no. up, yes, yes. So, so you need to... Well, unless you work for Baker's Zinn or something like that. Okay, like, yes, Whatever yes, the yes. case may no, be. No, but have fun is fine. Yeah. You know, if you don't feel that there's a need to, I mean, there's a lot of people... Yeah, I think Baker's Zinn was founded by a lawyer, so she fully understood that uh, opportunity cost. Yes, but yes. in any case, the, the point remains that you do want to um, have a, a mindset on the part of the employee that you continue to have to acquire new skills. But at the same time, there has to be some support on the other side in terms of corralling employers to subsequently take on these people that have acquired the skills that they say they need, uh, rather than to say, oh, no, well, you have acquired the skills, but we can meet that by hiring from abroad or meeting it in other ways. Uh, so there has to be some level of coordination in certain countries, in Germany, in some Scandinavian economies. What they have is that when there's displacement from their jobs, there is a commitment, usually a six month to one year commitment, where the displaced person uh, has to reskill. They commit to that. They get some some financial support in the process of reskilling, uh, but then they are guaranteed a job at the end of the that process. Mm. They're not guaranteed the same job. They're not even guaranteed the type of job that they are going to go into. Uh, but they are told that if you're willing to commit to reskill along these lines, we will get you to, to another job. Now, 
this, you could argue, doesn't apply to the lower end of the skill and education distribution. For them, it's really tough, which is why we need other tools yeah. on, on that front. Yeah, yeah. On, the, on the lower end, that's why we've argued uh, in favor of things like a minimum wage, for instance. But uh, at the middle and the upper ends, uh, the onus is on those who can reskill and clearly by their educational level have proven to be able to do so to have available to them the other end of the, the social contract, which is you also allow these people, uh, not allow, but you also provide some kind of assurance for these people that they will be able to re-enter into jobs that uh, will pay them at a comparable level or, or even more ideally because they have reskilled into a rising sector as opposed to a declining sector. And I, you, you can give a very concrete example of this. In the next decade or so, we will probably see a lot of displacements of uh, people in the petrochemical industry as we move away from a traditional aspect of our economy. It's not a, a big share. I think it's about 3 or 4% of our economy, but a non-trivial share of our economy uh, that is in petrochemicals. And I remember when I was just graduating out of uh, school, the biggest uh, attraction, the, the, the highest paying engineering major was chemical engineering. So the very best of my, my, our, my cohort ended up going into chemical engineering. Now, those people obviously were the very best then. They still have uh, the gray matter between their ears and they will be in a position to reskill, but they have to be willing to do so. Uh, many of them end up in the financial space. Well, uh, and, and then you get... Uh, <laughs> That's a long, long discussion. Yeah, arguably excessively complicated financial products. Yes, yes, uh, yes. But regardless, the point mm. still remains that um, they will be reskilling mm. for something else, a different profession, and they have the capacity to do so. And what they would require is both a combination of willpower to do so, while at the same time receiving an assurance that after they have done so, they will be able to then transition to something that that, that they can rely on for, for their mm -hmm. second career. But at least in the context of um, Singaporeans, you just got to reskill. You got to do it on your own. No, there's, would, there's not no. just Singaporeans. I think any anyone. Uh, no, in, no, no. But but bringing it back, you know, to like the local context, right? Because there isn't that cushion to kind of transit you. You know, it's just like oh, oh yeah. for now, yeah, for now. Um, for no, now. so that's why I for feel now, that until that until more, it happens, more, more policies can yes. be done uh, to help us along this way. Mm -hmm. We don't have any kind of redundancy on employment insurance. That is one aspect of the cushioning that I think is mm. it will be valuable to help someone to at least land on their feet while they're in the process of reskilling. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier on, working much more closely with rising sectors to uh, have a channel. So th there's so much that you read. I don't have the numbers because I'm not in the government, but there's so much that you read about skills gaps in certain sectors, in not just in computer science, which um, we are all aware of, but even in other sectors, their needs. So make sure that these skill gaps are being met by those people that have to reskill and that have the chops to, to be able to do so. And I think they, they, uh, the average Singaporean does. And so, so the more we are able to do this, uh, the better off we'll be in ensuring that the average Singaporean will be able to uh, cope with a dyna dynamically changing and transforming Singapore economy. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's the part on the individual. Right, we talk a lot about the individual, like what should they do, reskill, reboot themselves, whatever. Right, but what about the landscape, like the market itself? 
like over here, the kind of jobs we're looking at, you know, the the overall environment to to then be able to transit because at Education solve it all is a myth, right? The, the 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 reality is the market has to participate right, together. Right. With, so so that's why I mentioned yeah, yeah. what I did, which is that there has to be some sense of a closer working. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't need a national jobs database. We do have some form of a national job da- database, but some kind of uh, coordinated matching scheme mm. for the displaced with needs. Don't we already have something? We have, but it's, it's limited. So right now, it's mostly in one very specific se- sector, IT, and the scale is very, very small. Mm-hmm. So what we need is a much broader diversity of sectors in which this occurs. Uh, so opening a much, booth at uh, Next yeah, is not enough. No, no, and a much wider range of skill sets that, mm. that would be accommodated. Okay. Um, and, and just as important, uh, ensuring that... so. For instance, one of the issues that we always have is we say, "Oh, we have not enough IT people." We have not had. We have not had that story has been the case for thirty years, but and and so what we have we had to do we have to, had to import from the rest of the world. Why is it that we haven't been able to resolve this labor shortage for thirty years? If maybe because there, uh, there are many reasons. My, my, I have a simple theory. Look, computer science remains one of the uh, most prestigious. Um, departments to get into either at the highest level in the tertiary level in US for instance or even if you were going to go into an ITE or uh, to a poly uh, computer engineering or various computer related subjects are one of the hardest courses to get Mm -hmm. into at one level you want to make sure that people have what it takes to get into that that level of of expertise but computers are a wide range um you really don't need deep, deep skill sets to be uh, the average coder, for instance. And what happens is that we have set the bar so high in the computer courses that we have at all levels, ITE, poly, and, and university, that we create this artificial scarcity that now we need to fill with hiring from abroad. Mm. And it's not clear to me, at least, having I mine it in computer science. I have some notion, but also talking to colleagues that do work in in the IT sector. It's not clear to me that the ones that we hire with degrees, but not from the top tier uh, universities, are necessarily as good as some that we can produce ourselves. Mm -hmm. Why don't we have greater gradations of people that we're willing to take into our computer studies along the way? Um, And... Hence, meet the needs with homegrown talent uh, as opposed to having to... I have a different story to yeah, that. Yeah, please. <laughs> when I was in year one in NUS, okay, I, didn't, I didn't complete, sorry. But yes, I, I, 2013, first year in NUS, computing was a straight C program. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so it's a straight C program. And by the time I graduated, it became a straight A program. I'm like, this does not indicate any development in the program at all. It just indicates the demand mm. and the trend, right? So so, so that is one thing about cutoff uh, scores. And unless you happen to think that those in your cohort of straight C students... Truly hate computing? Tr- not, not just truly hate computing, but uh, the, those that we produce, those computer scientists mm. that we produce with the straight Cs, somehow were so much worse mm. than those that joined two or three years later... Mm-hmm that then you can say, okay, yeah, we need the straight A students. No, but no, I don't no, think no, so. No, I think not, that, no, no. Yeah, that yeah. those 
no, no, straight no. C students, yes, yes. like you said, uh, that join. They may uh, be the most passionate. That's why uh, they go they, there. They right? may so, be the uh, most passionate, uh, and on top of that, they I'm sure m- many of them are still productively employed in our economy, is, doing what they do in yeah. in information technology. So yeah. if the straight C student was good enough, so why aren't we allowing for more and more? gradations yeah, of students yeah. to get into these programs, yeah, especially yeah. when there's a demand from yeah. from so many of our young um, secondary school and junior college students yeah, that yeah, are, yeah, that yeah, are yeah, just yeah. graduating. But the essence of my story was that the school of computing was literally a corridor. <laughs> so, so that's how, like, really, and you school of computing, I hope you're no longer a corridor, but I always remember it as, oh, business school, I go up, turn left, or there's a corridor, there's a school of computing before I get to FASS Kitchen, you know, like the canteen, right? So if computing doesn't have its own space, it's not fun, it's not attractive, mm-hmm. th- that's the reality of getting talent today, right? You cannot expect people to be rational actors, to come in to be like, oh yeah, this is my most proficient, I should join this. If there's a true problem, then you should start asking yourself, why are we not making it more fun, more attractive, more... Yeah, more happening, you know, like computing can have its own building. Yeah, uh, well, right. <laughs> so so separate from the inf- physical infrastructure, I was, mm-hmm. I would just say that at, at the very least, it seems like thirty years or twenty years. I can, I don't know when you were last in school. You, you look like a, yeah, yeah, twi- yeah. So so well, that would be ten years. Oh my god! Yes, but all hail school. Th- this problem has been the case for at least twenty to thirty years, mm. and. It seems to me that this is a solvable problem that shouldn't take decades mm, mm. Uh, to resolve. Mm. And if it means being bolder in the kind of students that we are willing to accept in what we have clearly admitted to be um, a need for our economy, a need that is ongoing and, and is unlikely to diminish in the future, then we should continue to accept uh, students that don't make our current cutoffs and not create this kind of artificial scarcity that I think exists. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, then, then the next question in this wage dynamics, okay, is uh, I think the engineers in Singapore, they feel it, right? So they're being, a lot of them are being, uh, they're being priced out in a sense of, the you know, companies are bringing in Chinese engineers, Indian engineers, you know, and, and it's just, you just can't compete right, at, at their wage level. Mm. And just shout out to all our engineer friends. Um, a lot of them are experiencing depressed wage relative to the median and relative to their friends. So a lot of people end up in the market mechanics. They just shift, right? Oh, I'll quit engineering. I'll do something else. And if we as a country want to develop deep tech, but we have no basic tech, like no no engineers, we don't even have enough triple E graduates to replace. Mm. What can we do about you know engineering and developing wage for very specific, technically trained people. Yeah, you know? so I, I've, I've less expertise mm-hmm. uh, with engineering as opposed to IT, just because I know much less about mm-hmm. uh, that industry. So that's that's a, a caveat right there. But I would say, interestingly, in my experience of working with skilled individuals in any profession, is that of course you are, you would get a certain salary when when you have some basic level of training. But what really distinguishes people and gives them the promotions to move on into the higher levels is a combination of either a very peculiar technical (laughs) ability. And by peculiar, I mean... I was about to say peculiar character. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, (laughs) 
it helps, no judgment. It helps you to no judgment. Out, helps you to stand out. Uh, okay. but, but, but a pe- peculiar technical ability, right? So mm. someone who just is gifted. Mm. Or it could be someone who is able to approach problems in a creative fashion. So you you earn, you become productive, not through doing things faster, but through doing things better. And that creativity, to take a step back, goes back to our system of education. And that's something that we have to address mm. uh, right from the beginning at the, at the lower levels. And then the third... Which uh, we are, right? Which we are gradually. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. A little frustratingly slow for, for my taste, but ne- nevertheless, mm. we, we are trying to do so. And then the third uh, way is by transitioning people to become to develop their soft skills to become managers. And this is yeah. the traditional people that the engineers that have that now take on an MBA and so, so on and yeah, so forth. Yeah. And there we we don't necessarily have the best uh training either. Our soft skills, um the average Singaporean soft skills isn't as, as strong as it could be in, in other contexts. And so if we understand that these are the various added elements that we need our locals to foster in order to not compete uh, directly in a domain which uh, just stresses either road learning or a kind of um, conveyor belt production, then I think we become, then I think we become a lot more alert to the possibility of variations in, in exactly how to get people to earn more in the technical professions. Again, I, I understand I'm being a bit general here just because I don't really have expertise in in this particular sector of the economy. But nevertheless, I think the general principle of having people earn more because of relatively scarcer skill sets that aren't as easily competed away, that is a general principle that I think applies even in, in less skilled professions, but more generally. Mm-mm-mm. Okay, okay. So I, I think in closing... You're a big champion of universal basic income. Uh, well, Can I classify that? Uh, n- no, actually, I'll push back against that. Okay, I, okay, I, okay. I, I do. I, I mean, you I, talk about it. No, no. Mm-hmm. I talk about elements of helping individuals uh, have living wages. Okay. But the universal basic income is a very specific scheme mm. uh, that entails giving everyone, mm. regardless of... Uh, anything their levels of income or wealth uh, a fixed amount of money like tax yeah and and i i actually don't think that that system is all that attractive unless we truly get to a level where uh, machines do just about all the work that we want it to do and then i would say we can think of scheme like that have a collective purchase as society uh, of these machines and capital and so on and so forth, get these machines to build more machines and to and to produce the things that we want it to produce. Get all these. Th- this is the utopian dream, right? Keynes <laughs> dreamed about this in 1920. Yeah. Um, so to get these uh, machines to do what we need it to do, and then we can think about okay, maybe we each get this little dividend that comes from mm. uh, having that ownership. But at least for now. Uh, I don't see us being even close to the end of that road where we neither need humans to continue to be productive nor uh, are machines in a position to fulfill all the needs that we continue to want uh, humans to continue to... 
put, put, put it in the crudest terms, as much as I appreciate and, and respect the fact that Osim makes good massage chairs, <laughs> I very, very much prefer a human to be doing my okay. massages. Yeah. Okay, fair. Okay, so, so then in closing, last question, right? Is the Singaporean dream you know, alive? Or what is your view of what is the Singaporean dream? Yeah. Because it's been changing. Yeah, it's changed over yeah. time. So, so where do you see, what is the Singaporean dream to you? So I think, at least based on my observations, uh, the younger generation has become a lot more open to alternative realizations of the Singapore dream. The prior generation, you know, the common story is the five C's, credit card. I can't remember what the five C's are. It's Condo, no longer, credit card, it's no longer in discussion. Yeah, exactly. Yes, so yes. Because we have reached a certain level of material comfort that while it would be nice to have these things, I think, you know, I know many investment bankers that um, have, that live in HDB flats. They don't li- need to live in the condo. Um, there are many young people who are happy joining a gym and they don't need to live, have a country club membership uh, because they don't swim. Too know, bougie, the poo- too, yeah, too bourgeois, whatever it is. Like, <laughs> so anyway, the point is, I think that we have built a certain level of diversity in that Singapore dream. I think that's positive. There are people who want to pursue aspirations that are more creative, uh, that as long as they are able to put food on the table, uh, they are able to survive, that's good enough. They would rather have their self-actualization in in other ways. I I think that's absolutely admirable and and, and absolutely fine. I think we, we, it's a positive step for us in society. But all that being said, we shouldn't forget that many Singaporean households, many individuals um, are still struggling and they face this pressure that I mentioned from the sandwich generation where they feel that they want to start a family but that comes with attendant responsibilities, needs, financial needs. Uh, They have filial piety so they have to support their parents. Um, Which is a long discussion. A long discussion Um, but at the very least to turn off the nagging. mm -hmm. Um, So all these uh, still exist and we can do more and we continue to tweak the policies that we see in our that we have uh, as the current slate of public policies to better help us to realize those things and again I I'll be the first to say that we have come a long way and uh, prior governments have done a very good job in getting us to where we are today um, our hope is, uh, more, my hope is more that we have a continued robust debate over the direction that we want. Like how we started off the discussion earlier on. It's a matter of degree where we want to be. Whether that degree uh, is where I would like to see it, I, Jameis Lim, who cares? I, my personal preference for where I want it to be isn't as important as me being a voice for people that want it a little bit to the left of where we currently are um, and putting those viable alternatives uh, on the table mm. as something that we can wish for, that we can aspire toward. And if we get there, great. And if we don't, because not enough Singaporeans, not enough in society want that, then that's also fine. At least we have gone beyond just a single track. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um 
Last one. Yeah. <laughs> I just have so many I want to ask. So last one. I'm going to take this from our friend from Tetarik with Wallet. Okay. Right? So love Wallet. On a conciliatory note, okay, right, yeah. <laughs> what is one policy in recent times that the government of today have put out that you support and love? I mean, there's a lot of quibbles yeah, no, no, here and no, no, there. No. But and, yeah. and indirectly, uh, mm-hmm. the local qualifying salary, uh, by, by raising the local qualifying salary, has effectively become a minimum wage uh, for Singaporeans. So uh, it rolls it out in a different way than I would have envisioned. Actually, in I would even go as far as to say as a slightly more ingenious way mm. uh, than I would have uh, envisioned. But actually, that uh, we are getting to where we have an effective minimum wage. We can now quibble about what that level should be, uh, but at least we have the principle of a universal minimum wage for Singaporeans. We're almost there. Mechanics are there. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Hey, Coconuts, I hope you learned something useful today and truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with the financial coconut. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated, and discussed. Join our community Telegram group, follow us on our social, sign up for our weekly newsletter. Everything is in the description below. And if you love us and will help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. Subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Like, share, subscribe, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Also, if you have something interesting that you want us to go through or someone interesting that you want us to interview, reach out to us at hello at thefinancialcoconut.com. With that, have a great day ahead. Stay tuned next week. And always remember, personal finance can be chill, clear, and sustainable for all. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.